Judges 2, verse 11. <coughs> and the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord and served Balaam. And they forsook the Lord God of their fathers, which brought them out of the land of Egypt and followed other gods of the gods of the people that were round about them bowed themselves unto them and provoked the Lord to anger. And they forsook the Lord and served Baal and Ashtoreth. And the anger of the Lord was hot against Israel, and he delivered them into the hands of spoilers that had spoiled them, and he sold them into the hands of their enemies round about, so that they could not any longer stand before their enemies. Whithersoever they went out, the hand of the Lord was against them for evil, as the Lord had said, and as the Lord had sworn unto them, and they were greatly distressed. Nevertheless, the Lord raised up judges, which delivered them out of the hand of those that spoiled them, and yet they would not hearken unto their judges. But they went a whoring after other gods, and bowed themselves unto them. They turned quickly out of the way which their fathers walked in, obeying the commandments of the Lord, but they did not so. And when the Lord raised them up, judges, then the Lord was with the judge, and delivered them out of the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge. For it repented the Lord because of their groanings by reason of them that oppressed them and vexed them. And it came to pass when the judge was dead that they returned and corrupted themselves more than their fathers in following other gods to serve them and to bow unto them. And they ceased not from their own doings nor from their stubborn ways. And the anger of the Lord was hot against Israel, and he said, Because that this people have transgressed my covenant, which I commanded their fathers, and has, have not hearkened unto my voice, I also will not henceforth drive out any from before them of the nations which Joshua left when he died, that through them I may prove Israel, whether they will keep the way of the Lord to walk therein as their fathers did keep it or not. Therefore the Lord left those nations without driving them out hastily, neither delivered he them into the hand of Joshua. Now these are the nations which the Lord left to prove Israel by them, even as many of Israel as had not known all the wars of Canaan, only that the generation of the children of Israel might know to teach them to war, at the least such as before knew nothing thereof, namely the five lords of the Philistines, all the Canaanites and the Sidonians and the Hivites that dwell in the Mount Lebanon from Mount Baal Hermon, unto the entering in of Hamath. And they were to prove Israel by them, to know whether they would hearken unto the commandments of the Lord, which he commanded their fathers by the hand of Moses. 
And the children of Israel dwelt among the Canaanites, Hittites, and Amorites, and Perizzites, and Hivites, and Jebusites. And they took their daughters to be their wives, and gave their daughters to their sons to serve their gods. And the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord, and forgot the Lord their God, and served Balaam and the groves. Therefore, and here's where our text begins, and I will not repeat this again. Therefore, the anger of the Lord was hot against Israel, and he sold them into the hand of Cushan Rishathaim, king of Mesopotamia. And the children of Israel served Cushan Rishathaim eight years. And when the children of Israel cried unto the Lord, the Lord raised up a deliverer to the children of Israel who delivered them, even Othniel, the son of Kenarth, Caleb's younger brother. And the Spirit of the Lord came upon him, and he judged Israel and went out to war. And the Lord delivered Cushan Rishathaim, king of Mesopotamia, into his hand, and his hand prevailed against Cushan Rishathaim. And the land had rest forty years. And Othniel, the son of Kenaz, died. So ends the reading of the scripture and our text. There are two or three things, beloved, that we ought to observe before we get into the text proper tonight. And I point out to you, first of all, concerning those... uh, heathen, the original heathen that dwelled in this land. We are told in this context that the children of Israel had not exterminated them as the Lord had commanded, that is, not completely. They had destroyed many of them to be sure, especially do we remember the destruction of Sion and Ark, the heathen kings who reigned over certain provinces east of the Jordan. And this territory, as you may recall, was to be given as an inheritance unto a half-tribe of Manasseh, to Gad and to Reuben, only they had to promise that they would not enter into the possession of their inheritance until they had, with their brethren, also conquered the nations that were to the west of the Jordan. We learn also of the conquest of Joshua uh, to give unto the tribes of Israel, at least in part, their inheritance. We learn especially from the first chapter of this book of Judges uh, that the tribe of Judah, along with that of Simeon, uh, responded favorably and faithfully to God's command to uh, 
destroy the inhabitants that dwelled in their particular inheritance. It was the northern tribes, such as Zebulun and Naphtali and Gad and Asher, and even part of Manasseh and Ephraim, that had not succeeded in destroying uh, the heathen that dwelled there. And this, of course, had severe consequences, as you must certainly surmise. For we learn that presently that uh, the people of Israel dwelled among them. In the second place, it is also noteworthy that the Lord himself did not destroy these nations, and for a twofold reason. In the first place, it was his intention, because he knew of the wickedness of the heart of the children of Israel, to use these heathen nations that remained there as horns in the side of Israel to prove them whether they would serve the Lord or not. And secondly, it becomes very evident when you read this portion of scripture that we read tonight that it was the Lord's intention to the heathen nations that remained there to teach the children of Israel, to all. The people of God had to learn to fight. This, of course, uh, underscores the doctrine which we learn concerning the Church of Christ, that she is, so long as she is in this world, a militant church. He has to learn the weapons of her warfare. And for that reason, the Lord did not purposely destroy these nations. But the some consequence of all of this is that Israel dwelled among them. Not only that, that they were satisfied and content to dwell with these heathen and undoubtedly to be unequally yoked with them because that becomes very evident. They also, according to verse 5 in the preceding context of chapter 3, intermarried. (coughs) They gave their daughters and their sons to these heathen people and married with them. And as you must certainly know, when something like that takes place in the historical development of God's covenant in the world, then you have catastrophe. When the children of God literally marry the ungodly, this is not to convert the heathen, you understand, but to bring the church into wickedness and to destruction. This is a very important element here which we must certainly observe. 
And it follows, finally, that the Lord, as we learned in the first verse of our text for tonight, became angry. And the anger of the Lord was hot against Israel. And he sold them into the hand of Cushan Rishathaim. It is particular to that that I wanted to call your attention for a little while this evening. Israel sold to Cushan Rishathaim. There are three thoughts that I'd like to delineate in connection with this. First of all, point out rather analytically, of course, according to the text, an awful truth. This is indeed an awful truth when the Lord sells his people to the evil. We must pay attention to that. In the second place, <clears throat> In response to their cry, he sends to them a wonderful and mighty deliverance. And in the third place, as a consequence of that salvation, uh, we notice finally, very briefly, a joyous rest. That's what to have here. Incidentally, you have the three points of the catechism here. Sin, deliverance, gratitude. That's what you have. First of all, <clears throat> I must call your attention to an awful truth that God, Jehovah, sold Israel to cushion Rishathaim. You understand, of course, that this cannot possibly mean that God simply relinquished his possession and forsook Israel to the extent that Israel was no longer his people. You might get that conclusion if you understand the matter of selling in our normal way in which we use it. If I sell my house or my car, then it stands to reason that I am no longer the possessor of that house or of that car. I cannot dwell any longer in that house, nor can I drive that car when I sell it. The man to whom I sell it becomes the sole possessor of it. Now, you must understand, beloved, that that cannot be the case in the text when we read here that the Lord sells his people, that he simply relinquishes all right of possession to that people. That's not the meaning. Let me say in parentheses at this point, God always has his strings attached to his people, no matter how evil they become, 
how perverse they go in the direction of evil, he never forsakes his people. The reason for that is he's the faithful God. He never forgets his covenant, which he made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That's the comfort of the doctrine of God's covenant, beloved. Don't forget it. But in the second place, because of his very nature. You know, it happened several times in the history of Israel that God was very angry with his people. And he threatened to destroy all of them and to begin all over new, make a new nation. That happened, you remember, at Mount Sinai when they made that golden calf? God said to Moses, step aside, let me destroy the whole rotten business. And I'll make of you a new nation. You have that again. At the time of the return of the spies. Twelve spies, when you had that majority and minority report, and the majority of Israel listened to the majority report, you had rebellion to the point where God says to Moses, step aside, Moses, and let me destroy all of the people, and I'll make of you a new nation. And the mediator of the old covenant says, Lord, Oh, this is wonderful. I tell you, if you can understand it, he held God to his word and to his own being, you know. He said, Lord, you can't do that. You can't destroy that people. First of all, what will the heathen say? Your name will be blasphemed. They will simply say you were not able to bring that people into the land. Beside that, Jehovah, thou hast made an inviolable covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, our father. And thou canst not break thy word. Thou art the immutable God. And God says, that's right. You're right, Moses. You're absolutely correct. And so I will have to bear with these people. But oh, they are going to feel that. They're going to suffer for this. And they did. And you have that same situation here, beloved. When God sells his people into the hands of Cushion Rishathaim, beloved, then he does not relinquish his right to possession to that people. Nor does he forsake that people. But here is the wonder, beloved. He wonderfully withdraws from them his help. He has a way of doing that, you know. If you are inclined to walk in shame. And maybe for a time do walk in shame. You can't say, hip, hip, hooray. I'm walking in sin and everything is hunky-dory. Oh no, the Lord doesn't let that happen. He follows you in your sin. He circumscribes you. And he brings upon you chastisements that bring you to your knees. 
And he has a way of withdrawing from you his spirit and his grace so that you be find yourself to be helpless and hopeless as though you are without God in the world. That's what it means to serve. When Jehovah sells his people, he sells them in this sense that he no longer went before them into battle, but he recedes into the background and he lets Israel to be confronted with the enemy in their own deepest consciousness alone. That's awful, beloved. That's off. That's an awful truth. As I suggested, uh, this happens all the time in our experience, does it not? This history, you know, is not simply written about some miserable Jews that lived uh, thousands of years ago, but this is written. For the church today. That's why I'm preaching on it tonight. You must hear that. This is life. This is experience. This is exactly what happens. Every time that you. Depart from. Forsake Jehovah. He withdraws himself from you. And you do not experience his presence. You do not experience his help. You understand? You stand bold-facedly in front of the enemy that is always, and this is what happens when you depart from Jehovah, and you stand alone, you have no strength, you have no spiritual power, nor physical power to confront him. <coughs> and so the Lord here Gives them over into the hand of Cushion Rishathay. I'm not going to take much time this evening to talk about that man. That fancy name. <coughs> which perhaps most of us can't even pronounce. <coughs> There's all kinds of conjectures in the, among the commentators. Attempting to identify this king. Some say that first part of his name, Cushan, refers to uh, his office. Something like a prince or a governor. Cushan re referred to his official capacity or his official place of authority. Richard Thayen was probably his uh, original name. And others insist <coughs> that Cushion Rishithayan was his proper name. I don't think that we have to bother much about that, who he was, where he came from, but the text in the original leads us to believe that he was the king of Aaron. 
that the King James has here, King of Mesopotamia, is because of the Greek translation. The Greek gave to the country of Aram the name Mesopotamia. But whether it's Aram or Mesopotamia, it doesn't make any difference. This is the land that lay to the north and to the east of the land of Canaan. And in the original text you have Cushan Rishathaim, king of Aram, of the two rivers. <coughs> That's what you read literally in the Hebrew. And those two rivers, of course, refer to the rivers Euphrates and the Tigris, which also lay to the north and to the east of the land of Palestine, Canaan. And in that territory, this Cushan Rishathaim had his kingdom. But evidently, because the king's heart is in the hand of the Lord as rivers of water, and he turneth it whithersoever he will, according to Proverbs 21, verse 1, this king, because Israel sold, God sold Israel to him, laid it upon the heart of that king not to be happy with his own environs, his own kingdom, but to increase it in number and in size. And so he came down and invaded, especially the northern tribes that would be Naphtali and Shebulun and Asher and Gad and all of those tribes and uh, Manasseh who lay in the northern part of the land of Canaan, the land of their inheritance. And he came in there with his armies and simply took over. You don't read anywhere in this text or in its context that Israel went out to meet him, to do battle with him. This is what I called to your attention a moment ago, is peculiar of the way the Lord has of withdrawing from his people his help. They also feel immediately helpless, destitute, no hope. And so they succumb without battle. They succumb to the wilds and to the power of the invading king. In this case, Cush and Rishathair. And he takes over in their land. You must understand, of course, he had his officers along with them after he had conquered them. And these officers had to collect, as they always did, the taxes of the people. They were heavily taxed. They had to give tribute unto this heathen king. And the armies of Kish and Rishathim were there when the crops were to be harvested and simply ran off with the crop. You can imagine what this would do to people who would take the heart right out of them. They had no bread for themselves and for their children. And this went on for eight years. It went on until the children of Israel cried unto Jehovah. 
because of the oppression. Now I'm going to say something about that cry. You understand? This is not the cry of the rebellious anymore. The Lord doesn't hear their cry. But you must understand in that people of Israel that had departed from Jehovah is a remnant. Always the remnant according to the election of grace. They were a minority, to be sure. And for that reason, they did not have the power or the spiritual, physical stamina to lead that people over against their enemy. They did. As so often happens in the history of Christ's church in the world, when the people of God are a minority, then they come to the evil conclusion that it doesn't help to say anything anyway. The thing is too far gone. The majority rule, and you can't change things. That's terrible, I tell you. Even God's people, sincere people of God, who serve Jehovah, come to that evil conclusion. And therefore, there is no battle. No battle over against the enemy. No battle over against your own brethren according to the flesh. You remain silent. But the time comes, beloved, that the people of God who love Jehovah and who serve him cannot stand the sin of God's people, their own sin. And they must confess it. They must repent of it. And there you have the cry of Israel unto Jehovah. It comes to him through the mouths and through the hearts and through the confessions of his people. Oh, undoubtedly the wicked in Israel, who were a majority at this time, uh, were also fearful of the oppression. But it could only cause them to rebel against Jehovah all the more. That's what they do. But I assure you that God doesn't hear the cry of the rebellious. He does. He hears the cry of the penitent. Of those in whom he himself works godly sorrow. The Apostle Paul has a very nice way of expressing it. Godly sorrow worketh repentance, not to be repented of, but the sorrow of the world worketh death. Second Corinthians 10, verse 7. Godly sorrow is not only a sorrow that is after God, but it is a sorrow that is given of God. It comes from God. It is he who places it in the heart of his people. And when he gives unto them godly sorrow so that they see their sin and they deplore it and they humble themselves 
under his mighty hand before the face of Jehovah, and they cry unto him for deliverance, and he hears the cry, and he sends unto them salvation. Do you understand? That's the order. That's always the order of salvation. That's the way God saved them. You understand? Their cry was not the condition that moved God to deliver. But the way in which God brings salvation to his people. They cried unto him. And Jehovah heard their cry. And he sent unto them a deliverer. And it's rather remarkable, beloved, that that deliverer in this instance is not from Shebulun and Naphtali and Gad and Asher and Manasseh and Ephraim, but way from the south, from Judah. That's peculiar. And I have to say something about that because I think that must certainly be said in this connection. The deliverer came from Judah. And that reminds you of me, doesn't it, of the prophecy of Jacob in Genesis, I believe it is 49, verses 8 through 10. Judah Thou art he whom thy brethren shall praise. And thy hand shall be on the neck of thine enemies. Thy father's children shall bow down before thee. Judah is a lion's whelp. From the prey, my son, thou art gone up. He stooped down, he couched. As a lion, as an old lion, who shall rouse him up? The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet, until Shiloh come, and unto him shall the gathering of the people be. Now that's what Jacob said prophetically concerning his fourth son, Judah. Thou art a lion's well. To the prey, my son. Thou hast the scepter which shall not depart from thee until Jesus comes. That's wonderful. Judah, out of Judah comes the deliverer. That still is always true. For us too, our deliverer comes from Judah. Don't forget that. God prepared his deliverer in that fourth son of Jacob. In the second place, and this is remarkable too, that deliverer is Othniel. That name, Othniel, that was given to him by his father, Kenaz, 
who was a brother of Caleb, means literally Lion of God. Or perhaps better translated, my God is a liar. That's significant. My God is a liar. And all how that man Othniel proved that. If you read that first chapter of Judges, Caleb, who wanted to go and to possess his land, he was confronted with the enemies, the evil ones in, the, in his country. And, and, and he went out and he says to Simeon, his brother, who lay to the south of him, come on, let's go and fight them and get rid of all of these people as the Lord has said. And they did. But they came to Debar, which uh, had a, another name, Ezion Sefer, I believe it is. And he said unto Othniel, his nephew, if you will go up and fight against Debor and destroy the inhabitants thereof, I will give unto thee my daughter to wife. And he did. It means that Othniel not only believes that Jehovah was his God, but that his God was a liar. And he put his trust in Jehovah, his God, and was invincible in battle. He overcame the enemy, and he obtained as a reward his wife. It is that Athniel whom the Lord raised up to come to the north country and to fight against Cushan uh, Rishathai. And you read in that connection, in verse 10 of our text, and the Spirit of the Lord came upon him, and he judged Israel and went out to war. And I think you must understand that exactly in that order. First of all, he was a judge. He was the first judge of Israel. And that judge, according to his office, was first of all to bring that people over whom he judged through his instruction and through his government to Jehovah. He had to say to them in no uncertain terms, you have gone astray. You have forsaken Jehovah your God. You have forsaken his law. You have disobeyed his commandment to destroy the nations in the land. And therefore the Lord has brought upon you all of this distress. You must turn once more unto Jehovah. In other words, in one word, revival. Revival is necessary. You must repent. You must turn unto Jehovah. You must serve him with all your heart. And when you are ready to serve him with all your heart, then you will also be ready to go to war 
And so you read here. And he went before them to war. He became their captain in the battle. And this is precisely what the church must do. Don't you see? There must be no room in the camp of Israel for the enemy. That's devastating. That's so destructive that there is, from a human standpoint, no hope for the church that allows the enemy to dwell in the camp. And not only as we have said so many times, and you've heard it so many times, the battle, you understand, is not simply within your own environs. But that church must also be on the offensive. It must go into all the world to battle for the cause of Jehovah. She's a militant church. Just the opposite of what you hear nowadays. As soon as you open your mouth, you have to shut it because there's no room for controversy. No room for battle. You know that. We've been castigated as Protestant Reformed churches throughout our, all the years of our existence. Always fight. Well, I'm not saying tonight that all of that battle was holy war. Don't say that. An awful lot of sin connected with the battle. You understand? But the principle is unshakable, unmovable. It must stand. The church must fight, must fight against all her enemies in the name of Jehovah and the power and grace of Jehovah. You understand? That is the calling of the church. And that battle never ceases. All that battle goes on in your own heart, you know. First of all, because that old man of sin is right here. You don't have to go and look for him in Africa and China, where Buddhism and Shintoism and all the other isms are. It's right here in your own flesh. That's where it begins. The battle always begins here. But it must stay there. It must go out. It must go against all that withstand the truth, that deny that Jehovah is God. You understand? That is the calling of the Christian church. That was the calling of Israel here. And when God raises up a deliverer, this is precisely what happens. He became a judge that fashioned that people once more according to the word of God. According to the will of God. So that they love God. And let me say something here. The majority, minority, suddenly becomes the majority. That's what happens. Martin Luther, in the days of the Reformation, when he stood alone before the princes 
of the die was a majority. Invincible majority. Don't you ever forget it. You don't have to be big. We aren't big either, you know. Not in numbers, nor in power. God has a way of revealing his strength in weakness. You always are. This is what you have to remember. You young people, you children must remember that too. We must love to hold. We serve here. No matter what happens. And it is he. That gives unto us deliverance. Not our field. Not the job. Not man. But Jehovah. He raises up. Othniel, and gives unto Othniel to be the judge and the captain, to bring all Israel under his command, to return once more through a wonderful spiritual revival unto Jehovah, the God of our salvation. And there is no Christian Rishathaean, beloved. There is no Pharaoh. There is no devil. There is no host of demons that, that can withstand that God and that deliverance. You understand? That church is invincible. That has Jehovah for its God. And who puts constantly their trust and their hope in him. That's my text. And that means, finally, as you so beautifully read here, too, in a few words. And the land had rest for forty years. I call it joyous rest. And it becomes that precisely when you see it on the dark background of the oppression of sin, of depravity, of God forsakenness. Rest. Oh, of course, this is temporary. It's not going to last because the church is in time here. And that's why when you read the book of Judges, you read that again. In fact, you see it in the next verse that follows our text. And the children of Israel did evil again in the sight of the Lord. The whole thing starts over again. <coughs> So this rest is not eternal rest, it's not perfect, temporary. 
but it's beautiful and joyous. And that means when God brings his people to the point where they can behold him in all the work of his salvation and glorify him for his greatness, for his power, for his grace. That's what rest is. Rest is not inactivity, but it is joyous, constant, spiritual activity according to which we behold the work of God and glorify him for it. For 40 years, that's a long time when you compare the eight years of the oppressed, God gave unto his people. And you read here, and Othniel, the son of Kenash, died. That belongs with the text. So long as Othniel, the judge, lived, and so long as the wonderful spiritual influence and power was exercised over that people of Israel, they had rest. But as soon as God brings this man of God to his grave, and that's the nature of the children of Israel again, their old nature never wants to serve God, it doesn't want to be in the land of Canaan, not really. They want to be where they can satiate and satisfy the longings and desires of sinful flesh. This is the way they always go. That leads me to say in conclusion, beloved, there are two or three lessons that ought to be learned here. First of all, <coughs> Israel, according to nature, always departs from Jehovah. That may sound a little bit too simplistic, maybe, but that's the truth. Israel, and that means you and I, according to nature, always depart from Jehovah. We won't have anything of it. Rather, we seek the gods that satisfy our carnal nature. That's what Israel did. And that's what we do. Don't forget that. In the second place, we learn this from this text. That Israel, according to grace, always repents. She does not go on in her sin to destruction. Never does. Israel, according to grace, always cries out, God be merciful to me, the sinner. 
not of themselves, you understand. That is of the grace of God that is within us. In the third place, Jehovah always remembers his covenant. And he sends deliverance. That's what makes that son of Judah so precious to me and should be to you. Judah, thou art a lion's wealth. The scepter shall not depart from thee, nor the lawgiver from between thy feet, until Jesus comes, who shall bring the deliverance through his perfect sacrifice on the cross and the slaying of all our enemies and the making of everlasting peace. Beloved, not for 40 years, but forever and ever, the people of God shall have rest, not lying each one under his wine and fig tree, but in spiritual activity. Forever and ever, wondering, standing in awe, drinking in the wonder and the glory and the salvation and the power and the wisdom of Almighty God as He is pleased to reveal Himself unto us in Jesus Christ our Lord. May God grant unto you and me to keep these things and to hide them in our hearts. Amen. Our Heavenly Father, we give unto thee thanks for the privilege to come once more under the hearing of thy almighty word was our sanctify it unto our hearts. Give us to understand and to taste the beauty of it and to leave this place with the firm conviction that thou art our God and we are thy people. And we love thee because thou hast first loved us and shed abroad thy love in our hearts. And we believe that thou wilt keep us in spite of all of our sin and shortcomings and perfect us at last to enter into the eternal rest through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen.